You are listening to RudolfSteinerAudio.com. As well, you can hear these podcasts at RudolfSteiner.Podbean.com. Please consider becoming a patron. There are two publishing houses, SteinerBooks.org in America and RudolfSteinerPress.com in England, which are the sole publishers of Steiner into English and have given me permission to do these recordings. Please consider patronizing them as well. This is a reading of Collected Works, Volume 121, by Rudolf Steiner, 11 lectures, entitled The Mission of Folk Souls, translated by Johanna Collis. This is Lecture 5, given in Christiania, Oslo, June 11, 1910. As we heard in yesterday's lecture, if we wish to make an impartial study of the facts underlying our present investigation, we must transcend the prejudices that might easily arise concerning what I will now describe objectively. So long as one has the slightest tendency to take personally an impersonal description of a particular race or people, it will be difficult to reach an unprejudiced understanding of the facts discussed in these lectures. For this reason, too, the only foundation on which we can base what has to be said about these things is that of spiritual science. For whatever we might hear about the character of one particular people or another, and however much our feelings and emotions might be tied up with our belonging to a particular race or a particular people, we do have an adequate counterweight in the teachings of spiritual science about karma and reincarnation, when this is rightly understood. It opens up a future prospect of the inmost core of our being entering into incarnation in all kinds of races and all kinds of peoples. When we contemplate this inmost core of our being, we may therefore be sure that through it we will share not only the positive, but perhaps also the negative aspects of all races, of all peoples, but also that we will receive in our inmost being the countless blessings of all races and peoples through being incarnated in all of them at one time or another. Our consciousness, our horizon is widened through these ideas of karma and reincarnation. This enables us to accept what is revealed to our spiritual insight at the present time about the mysteries of races and peoples. If we rightly understand the theme of these lectures, we shall harbor no regrets at having incarnated in a particular people or race, but an objective survey of characteristics found in peoples and races may provoke dissension and disharmony unless it is accepted in the spirit I have already suggested. The student of spiritual knowledge will learn from the teachings of karma and reincarnation how every people, even the smallest, as a contribution to make to the evolution of humanity as a whole. In the second part of this course of lectures, we shall show, and herein lies its real importance, how the particular influences of the missions of the several peoples flow into humanity as a whole, and how even isolated pockets scattered here and there among larger peoples have their part to play in the great harmony of human evolution. This will gradually become clear in the spiritual sense as we proceed. In order to gain a full understanding of the characteristics of the individual folk souls, we shall have to select examples which are clearer to us in certain respects 
than the characteristics of peoples in our own time. Another reason for dealing with the characteristics of peoples who belong to a more distant age is to learn how to set about understanding the character and missions of peoples in the first place. Thus far we have described what is meant by a race and a people only in general terms. In the course of the previous lectures, we have learned that races come about through the cooperative activity of a normal and an abnormal spirit of form, while a people arises through the cooperation of a normal and an abnormal archangel. This showed us how the beings of the spiritual hierarchies intervene in evolution. The question now arises, how do the beings of an even higher order work into the external world? We shall do well to create a basis for our understanding of this by studying the hierarchies of which the human being is the lowest member. You will recall that we placed the human being on the lowest rung of the ladder. Below him are the three kingdoms of nature, the animal, plant, and mineral kingdoms. Above him are the angels, archangels, and archai, or primal beginnings. This is the hierarchy immediately above the human being. The next hierarchy is as follows. Number one, spirits of form, powers, exousiae. Number two, spirits of motion, mites, dunamis. Number three, spirits of wisdom, dominions, curiotities. Then comes the highest of the three hierarchies. Number one, spirits of will, thrones. Number two, cherubim. Number three, seraphim. Now let us ask, since all spiritual beings reveal themselves in some way, appearing somewhere in the realm of maya or illusion, which is the realm of the sense-perceptible world, where can we find them at this lowest level of manifestation, this level of deception? In their normal perception of nature and spirit, human beings know only the realm of maya or illusion, the most external manifestation of these spiritual beings. Let me show you an example of what I mean. Suppose a person is walking on foot over the bare rocky landscape of a northern country. His first impression will be of a rocky expanse spread out before him, and he will describe this solid rock formation in terms of his first impression, namely as hard, rocky substance. But someone who penetrates into the very nature of things will see something entirely different in this rocky substance. What do we tread on? What is it that offers us resistance? What we believe is there is in fact not there at all. It is an illusion. The external surface of our earth is merely an illusion. The truth is that forces work upward from below, forces that are nothing other than forces which radiate outward from certain beings. Thus, in a piece of ground spread out before us, we see something that represents a force emanating from the earth and spreading out in all directions. These forces truly exist and spread out into space. Yet, if these were the only forces, we should not be able to walk about on the ground because they would hurl us out into space at great speed. We owe our ability to stand on firm ground to the circumstance that on all sides, 
other forces stream in from the universe. Where the forces streaming in encounter the forces streaming out, a boundary arises, and this is the surface of the earth. Thus what we see as a surface is no more than an illusion, the result of in-streaming and out-streaming forces which impede each other's progress at the place we see as the surface. The forces raying out are the activities of the thrones, the activities of the spirits of will. These spirits send out their forces from the earth in all directions, and the forces that stream in from the universe are essentially the forces that emanate from certain spirits of motion. These two kinds of force meet here, and this interaction of the thrones with the spirits of motion, caused by the thrones being interrupted in their work by the spirits of motion, brings into being the surface with its manifold configurations. Thus what we see as the surface of the earth out there is an utter untruth, an extreme deception. In reality, it is the product of a balance of forces, an agreement, as it were, between the spirits of will and the spirits of motion, leading to the many and varied configurations to be found on the earth's surface. But this interplay alone would not enable our earth to arrive at its present planetary form. The forces of the spirits of will and the spirits of motion, acting and reacting upon each other, would not be sufficient for this. The effect would be something entirely different. If the spirits of will, raying out from within the earth, were to have only the spirits of motion as their sole opponent, the earth would be in a continual state of flux, with ever-moving forms that never come to rest. It would not be quite as fluid as the ocean in its present state. It would not be as liquid as water, which easily throws up waves. But waves of a more viscous kind would nevertheless form. To help you imagine how the spirits of will and the spirits of motion originally worked in concert, I would like to give you an example and would ask you to follow this on the map. In the first place, let me draw your attention to the Alps, which today form a solid mountain skeleton, a solid rocky barrier separating the Italian peninsula in the south from the rest of Europe. How did this alpine chain come into being? There was a time in the far distant past when the alpine massif did not exist, but to the north and west there were older hills, which had by then already become solidified. Waves of a semi-fluid consistency were then thrown up from the south. We may picture the situation somewhat like this. See diagram on the following page. Here at A we have the Bohemian Plateau. Now imagine a huge wave thrown up from the south that divided and spilled over the Bohemian Plateau on the right and the central Plateau of France on the left. In primeval times, this was the mighty wave that formed the Alpine Massif. Even without specialist knowledge, someone standing on one of the Alpine peaks and surveying the unique configuration of the Alpine chain can observe what spiritual science has long since observed and what geologists are also observing today, namely the peculiar wave-like formation 
which dates from the time when the primeval mass of the earth was still in a semi-fluid state. Such would be the configuration of the earth today through the cooperation of the spirits of will and the spirits of motion if another activity had not intervened, an activity which was remarkably persistent and which was manifested on the surface of our earth by the interweaving of the activity of the spirits of form with the spirits of will or thrones who worked in conjunction with the spirits of motion. Thus you may imagine how these spirits of form dancing, as it were, upon the waves brought the ever-moving masses to rest and molded them into forms. We can therefore point to the cooperative activity of three different forces that proceeded from three kinds of being. On the one hand, we see the spirits of form who directed their activity both upward and downward, both toward the sphere of the spirits of will and toward the sphere of the spirits of motion. Above them are the spirits of motion and below them the spirits of will. What on the earth appears, for the most part as a fluid element, not the liquid water we see around us today, but the primal fluid element that was brought to rest by the spirits of form, we must regard as the most external manifestation of the spirits of will or thrones. But another element always mingled with this activity. The spirits of will or thrones were aided by the cherubim and seraphim. The cherubim gave their assistance in the air element, in everything aeriform that penetrated the apparently solid substance of the earth. Air is an illusion behind which stand the mighty beings we call cherubim. The seraphim work in fire. They are behind everything that manifests as heat. Thus we see what radiates outward from the center of our planet. Our planet is so constituted that the spirits of will or thrones, the cherubim and the seraphim, work from the center. We must look upon our planet in this way. Where the boundaries of air and heat are, the atmosphere is just as much a part of our planet as the water and the dry land, there a kind of surface is formed. Upon this surface, the spirits of form literally danced on the waves, brought them to rest, and molded them into form. They received their name because it was they who brought the semi-fluid element to rest. Behind them were the spirits of motion. It is with their element that the spirits of wisdom intermingled. When, therefore, we look inward toward the center of our planet, we are aware of the presence of lofty beings, thrones, cherubim, and seraphim. When we turn outward, we look, first of all, through the sphere of the spirits of form, who permeate the air and heat with their element, and see the spirits of motion and the spirits of wisdom. When we look outward to the periphery of the earth, when we lift our eyes to the cosmic spheres, all the nature forces and natural phenomena we encounter there are fundamentally the work of the second hierarchy. Everything we see when we look into the depths of the earth, we ascribe to the beings of the third, the highest hierarchy. And it is to the unique cooperative activity of the second and third hierarchies that we owe the configuration of our environment. 
We have stated that the three elements of water, air, and fire are related to the spirits of will, the cherubim, and the seraphim. In which element of nature do the spirits of form manifest themselves? These are the beings closest to us who dance upon the surface on which we live and have our being. They come in from universal space, but then unfold their forces in the emanations rising up from the earth. For our observation, they are concentrated in the outstreaming rays of sun. Light, therefore, is the element in which the spirits of form first weave and work. Since, however, the activities of light and everything related to this manifest themselves at the frontier, where the spirits of motion and the spirits of will work in concert, it is here that solid forms are created. Human beings do not as yet possess organs that would enable them to see what lies beyond these forces of light we call the spirits of form, no organs with which to perceive whatever is woven into that light. Everything that on our earth brings about decomposition and composition, all the chemical forces active here, are still interwoven with light, and this is principally the domain in which the spirits of motion operate. When a person learns to perceive something of what is otherwise only manifest as maya in the chemical effects of composition and decomposition, then he hears these spirits of motion, then he experiences the music of the spheres spoken of in Pythagorean and other mystery schools. This is what Goethe was describing when, instead of writing about the sun as the giver of light, he said, quote, the sun in ancient guise, competing with brother spheres and rival song, with thunder march, his orb completing, moves his predestined course along. This music of the spheres is still there, but it is inaudible to ordinary consciousness. It is a reality, it is an astral effect that approaches all human beings from outside, only they do not hear it. Light alternates, it becomes invisible when darkness falls. And if they could discern a similar alternation in the music of the spheres, then they would hear it at certain times. In fact, it resounds by day and by night, but they can only hear it after undergoing some spiritual schooling, some spiritual development. Whereas light streams toward us during the day as light and continues to weave around us at night as the light we have absorbed and assimilated, the music of the spheres sounds forth continually by day and by night. In this connection we are like the miller who only hears the mill wheel when it is at a standstill. In addition to the others there are also the spirits of wisdom who work from the surrounding universe into the weaving light and into the music of the spheres that spreads throughout the cosmos. This is the life of the cosmic etheric raying in onto the earth. Life streams in onto the earth from cosmic spaces and is received by living creatures. It comes from the spirits of wisdom. Thus we look out into cosmic distances and see, first of all, the sun in 
which these forces are concentrated for our benefit. We see how, from these distant spaces, the trinity of the second hierarchy streams in toward us, the flowing life, the weaving sound, the formative light. And from below upward, there streams toward us the highest hierarchy, the seraphim, cherubim, and thrones. And interwoven with all terrestrial activity, the lowest hierarchy, meanwhile, works chiefly within all beings. In the first place, there are the archai, acting as time spirits. These time spirits work in all that has been prepared for them by the higher hierarchies. They bring about what we call human history, the cultural evolution of the earth. Then, also around us, we find the archangels, the folk spirits, and finally the angels, those spirits who mediate between individuals and the archangels. We can sum up by saying, in the forces of nature on our planet, in earth, water, air, and fire, the beings of the highest hierarchy stream toward the activity of the spirits of form that come in from outside. From outside, the beings of the second hierarchy stream inward. And in the immediate environment of the earth are the beings of the lowest hierarchy, who, for the moment, possess the weakest forces. Imagine for a moment how powerful are the forces of those exalted beings whom we call the spirits of will, who fashion the very ground under our feet. Then we have those forces that stream in from outside. Think of the spirits of form who are closest to us and who mold the contours of the earth. Then we have the angels, archangels, and archai who work intimately into human souls. Thus, in the highest hierarchy, we find those forces of nature which we recognize as the strongest, the nature forces emanating from within the earth, the forces of the solid earth beneath us. In the second, we find the forces that live and weave around us in the etheric element, and in the lowest hierarchy is that which lives and weaves deep within us. If we observe the cooperative activity of these three hierarchies and see how they operate in our planet, how they form it out of the womb of the universe, then we have some indication of what was necessary in order to create this earth. It had to undergo various incarnations before becoming the earth, the old Saturn condition, the old Sun condition, and the old Moon condition. In my writings on the Akashic Chronicle, and in my title and outline of Esoteric Science, CW13, you will find descriptions of how even during those earlier incarnations of our earth, these various spiritual beings worked together, although the nature of that cooperative activity was different from that of today. With each new incarnation in the Saturn, Sun, Moon, and now the Earth state, the cooperative activity of those hierarchical beings assumed a different form, because each of these planetary conditions represents a specific task that the hierarchical beings set themselves. We may confidently affirm that each of the conditions through which our earth has passed, and those which still lie ahead, 
represents and has represented a particular stage in the process of cosmic evolution. Since all the concepts change from one planetary condition to the next, it is extremely difficult to define the tasks of the old Saturn, old Sun and old Moon states. It is difficult because at first we can only characterize the mission of our Earth quite abstractly. The simplest way to conceive of this mission is to call to mind the nature of the various forces that are manifest in the universe. Looking at the inner life of the human being, what we find there is willing, feeling and thinking, while our outer vehicles consist of the physical body, the etheric body and the astral body. Thus, while ignoring the I, capital, for the moment, we may picture the human being today as a tapestry consisting of physical, etheric and astral bodies into which are woven as into an outer envelope, willing, feeling and thinking. These forces, both externally and internally in the human being, are always related to one mission or another that was linked with earlier incarnations of the earth. Consider the mission of old Saturn. To gain an approximate idea of what this was about, you must think of it as being connected with the human physical body, on the one hand, and with the human will, on the other. Thus, if there had been no Saturn incarnation of our earth, then human will, on the one hand, and the physical body, on the other, would not have acquired their present form. Human beings owe their will and their physical body to old Saturn. We are indebted to the Akasha Chronicle for this knowledge about the physical body. Every previous condition also works on in the subsequent forms as well. And so the life of will, as we know it today, can be traced back to the after-effects of the Saturn element, which resulted in the human being coming to be manifested as will from out of his inmost being. You will gain an understanding of the old sun condition if you consider the human etheric body and link this with feeling. You have already been told that the etheric body can be traced back to old sun, and the after-effect of this has meant that the human being was subsequently able to develop the inner forces of feeling. Finally, we find that the old moon condition was related to the human astral body and the inner life of thinking. It thus transpires that three successive cosmic missions were needed so that the inner and outer forces of the human being, physical body, etheric body, astral body, and willing, feeling, thinking, could develop into the external and internal life we have today. And to enable the tasks of those three successive incarnations of our earth to be fulfilled in the endowment of human beings with the constitution we have today, it was necessary in each case for the beings of the hierarchies to work together in appropriate ways. The mission of old Saturn had to be fulfilled because otherwise the physical body and the life of will could not have been bestowed on the human being. The mission of old sun had to be fulfilled since otherwise we would not have been able to receive the etheric body and the life of feeling. And finally, the mission of old moon had to be fulfilled because otherwise we would not have received the astral body and the power of thinking. 
Those three previous incarnations of our earth, therefore, were especially devoted to one of the salient aspects of our individual being, our I, capital. In effect, the external physical body that stems from the being of old Saturn, from the spirits of will, is simply the will seen from the outside. Today, the will works outward from within. Parenthesis, these words are carefully chosen. They are no flight of fancy, for they fit the facts completely and you can learn much from them. Close parenthesis. The earth underwent the old sun period, so that on the one hand the foundations could be laid for the etheric body to flow from the spirits of wisdom, and so that on the other hand the foundations for feeling, which reflects inner wisdom, could be laid through the continued working of the element of wisdom. And the mission of Old Moon is linked in a similar manner with the astral body and thinking. The question we must now ask is, what was the special mission of the spirits of form who worked chiefly on the earth and fashion it? The mission of the spirits of will or thrones who worked chiefly during old Saturn was to bring in the element that later, during earth evolution, became manifest in the will. The great mission of old Saturn was to implant the will, the forces of will. When we contemplate such things, we are filled with awe and reverence for the ruling cosmic powers. They command our deep respect when we realize that a special planetary mission was necessary for the skillful interweaving of outer will which resides in our physical body, and inner will. The whole world of the hierarchies had to bring about the birth and death of a planet in order to create the condition that is woven into us as the outer and inner element of will. In the same way, the old sun had to arise so that the etheric body and the element of feeling, the inner element of wisdom, could come into being. And the old moon mission was necessary to the creation of our astrality, which is reflected inwardly in the human being as the inner element of thinking. What then is the mission of the spirits of form? What is their real mission for the earth? Whereas the mission of old Saturn is associated with the imprinting of the will, the old sun mission primarily with the imprinting of the feeling element, and the old moon mission chiefly with the imprinting of the thinking element that belongs to the human being's astral body, the mission of the planet Earth is to bring about a perfect balance of these three elements, each of which was dominant in one of the previous conditions of our planet. These three elements are to work together in a state of harmony, each having formerly been dominant in one of Earth's earlier incarnations. The mission of our Earth is to resolve the conflict between these elements by restoring a proper balance between them. And the human being has been brought into intimate involvement with this earthly mission in order, first of all, to build up this balance within his own thinking, feeling, and willing. When the Earth was first created, The human being was, in this respect, a complete patchwork of thinking, feeling, and willing. And anyone who possesses even the smallest amount of self-knowledge can sense how the inner balance between them 
has not yet been fully achieved, but in many cases remains in disharmony and disorder. Thus our first task is to establish a balance between thinking, feeling, and willing within our own inner being, and then it will be possible for us to send out and communicate to the earth as a whole the meaning of such a balance of thinking, feeling, and willing. In esoteric symbolism, this mission of the earth has always been expressed in a special way by a certain figure. Amongst all the geometrical figures, you will find none that corresponds so exactly to the balance of these three activities as the equilateral triangle. You only have to draw an equilateral triangle to discover that all three sides are the same, all three angles are the same, and all three points equidistant from one another and from the center. The center point of an equilateral triangle is the absolute symbol for the balance of forces, so that when a student of esotericism views a triangle, he sees in it a symbol of the perfectly balanced cooperation of the elements, each of which once held the upper hand in one of the earlier incarnations of our earth. The deeds of the human eye, capital, signify simply the creation of an active center in our being, through which this state of balance can be prepared from within. The human being is indeed called to a high destiny on the earth, namely to bring about from within a balance throughout his own being of those forces which were formerly dominant in different ways and at different times. This definition of our earthly mission may sound rather abstract, but it does describe the situation precisely. It is the secret of this mission that this collaboration, this balance of the three forces, really does cause the inner being to create something new in a productive way. A fourth element, the element of love, comes into being and is added to the previous three. Love can only be brought into the workings of the world if a perfect balance is achieved between the three forces that dominated at different times in the past. We shall have more to say about this in the next few days. For the moment you must accept it as a general description. Thus our planet is the planet of love, and therefore this balance that comes about through the collaboration of those three forces results in the, quote, activity of love, close quote, and this activity of love is to be woven into the whole of evolution throughout all the successive incarnations of our planet by this fulfillment of the mission of the present earth condition. In this way, a threefoldness becomes a fourfoldness, and this fourfoldness begins with its fourth element at the lowest level. It begins, so to speak, with the lowest form of love, which is then purged and purified to a state in which at the end of the whole of earthly evolution, love will emerge as an element of fully equal status with the others. To fulfill the mission of balance for our earth planet means, in effect, to transform the threefoldness into a fourfoldness. That is why the mystery of earth existence is expressed in the words, quote, to transform the threefoldness into a fourfoldness, close quote.
Today the fourth element is inevitably still very imperfect. But once earth has fulfilled its mission, it will become as luminous as the holy triangle, which with its perfect balance shines forth as the highest symbol we possess for our earthly ideal in relation to earth's past. It is this working together of the elements of thinking, feeling and willing in the inmost part of the human being that first makes this inmost part into the substance of love. This is what we may call the truly creative, the inwardly creative element in earth existence. And since the spirits of form have the mission of bringing the three earlier conditions into a state of balance, we also have to name them collectively the spirits of love. In considering earth existence in this way, we first described the willing, feeling and thinking outside our earth planet and we described as the special task of the spirits of form the implanting of love that results from the balance of these three forces. This is the overall mission of the earth. In order to bring into existence this power of love that will permeate the earth, it is necessary for everything we have described as the work of the lower hierarchies to interplay and interact. As we began to indicate in the previous lecture, the web, the tapestry of love, must be woven. And it must be woven in such a way that the main threads are spun into it by the normal spirits of form. For this is in accordance with their main mission. Into this, the abnormal spirits of form, who are actually spirits of motion, weave that which gives us the races, the normal and abnormal time spirits, then weave into it the historical development of humanity, and then the archangels, both normal and abnormal, weave into it the separate developments of peoples and languages, and finally the angels, who determine the individual's proper place on the earth, also play their part. In this way, the mighty tapestry of love is being woven. Yet of this tapestry of love, which is being woven as the real mission of the earth, only the maya, the outer reflection, is visible on earth. The nearest realm above the physical world in which it is possible to perceive this tapestry is the astral world. But in order to see the working of the hierarchies even more clearly in the truths underlying our external maya, we must raise our consciousness from the astral plane to the planes of lower, and higher Devakan. Then we see how this tapestry is being woven. If we raise our consciousness to the astral plane, we cannot yet see the beings who weave mainly from within, namely the spirits of will, the cherubim and the seraphim. We have to rise to still higher realms in order to see these spirits at work. But already in the astral world we find the abnormal spirits of form who, if they had fulfilled their normal evolution, would be weaving from without. We have seen that the spirits of the second hierarchy should be weaving from without, but here we see them weaving from within. Thus, into this tapestry, in which the spirits of motion, the spirits of form, and the spirits of wisdom are weaving from without, while the spirits of will, the seraphim, and the cherubim are weaving from within. 
There are also other beings, weaving from within, who should really be weaving from without. They work beneath the surface, as does the silkworm, when weaving its cocoon. Inwardly, this is what we initially see in the astral world. These singular spirits of motion, these displaced, fallen spirits, are the first thing we see of the spiritual beings who weave and surge in the earth's spiritual atmosphere. These spiritual beings who are the first to become visible to us on the astral plane, even before the normal angels, are the spirits who in a sense lead our clairvoyant vision astray, although they were, in fact, most deeply necessary for the generation of the races. These spirits, each of whom has many attendant spirits, because each one begets many spiritually subordinate beings, are surrounded in the spiritual world by a number of beings who are always subordinate to their respective hierarchies. The higher spirits also have their subordinate beings. The spirits of will have the undines. The cherubim have the sylphs. The seraphim have the salamanders. And the abnormal spirits of form, who are really spirits of motion and who appear as ugly spiritual beings on the astral plane, also have their subordinate spirits. These are the spirits who are actively engaged in whatever is associated with the genesis of the human races. In human beings they are associated with elements we have described as being earthbound, such as reproduction and the like. These beings, indeed this whole domain, is one of the most variegated and dangerous of the astral world. And this is the appropriate moment at which to call attention to the fact that it is unfortunately the domain that is most easily contacted by those who attain clairvoyant vision by erroneous methods. The hosts of these spirits who have been associated with the propagation of race are the most easily perceived. Many who have entered into the esoteric realm prematurely or in the wrong way have had to pay dearly for it because they encountered this host of spiritual beings without the harmonizing influence of other spiritual beings. We have been able to shed light upon what actually weaves the tapestry from which the real soul world of the human being emerges. Tomorrow we shall continue to speak about how this foundation, into which we have glanced a little today, appears in the development of races, peoples, and so on. The end of Lecture 5